0: Alrighty, so if you've got your Bibles there, turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to finish our study of the Ten Commandments. So first off, I thought we'd just have a little quiz. What are the Ten Commandments? Number one, no other gods before me, that's it. And number two, no more idols. Number three, yep, don't blaspheme, name of the Lord. Number four, Yep, keep the Sabbath day holy. Number five, good, honor your father and mother. Number six, do not murder. Number seven, yep, do not commit adultery. And number eight, do not steal. Very good. Number nine, yep, do not lie. Very good. And number ten, do not covet. Awesome. Okay, so let's just look at some of these commandments. I'll show this to you later, but they represent God's character. I'll show you why later on, but you can see it as you go through them. So, you shall not murder, how does it show God's character? Yeah, God's love. Do not murder is based on hating people, and God is the opposite of that. So, he's loving people. What about do not commit adultery? Faithfulness and purity. And what about stealing? Yeah, he could say it's honesty, but there's more than that. What's the opposite of stealing? Giving, yeah. God is a generous giver. What about lying? Yeah, truthfulness. God always tells the truth. He cannot lie. What about coveting? Contentment. Yep, content with God's provision. And he's never... Greedy. So you could think of it that way. The Ten Commandments are still for today. Not as a means of being good enough, but as a guide to who God is and what we are becoming. Okay, so I'm going to explain what that means today as well. So last week, you went through verse by verse, understood what those standards are and how they apply to us practically this week i want to ask and answer three questions what is the purpose of the law what is the effect of the law and what did jesus mean in matthew five seventeen when he said i have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it so i'll just pray and we'll, we'll jump in father thank you for this opportunity lord i'm really excited that this is not a thing where you you're beating us up lord This is something where you're encouraging us. This is a promise. Lord, you're taking these commands which made us feel hopeless at one stage and now you're going to empower us to make us into the kind of people that want to do these things. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. All right. So overall, the Ten Commandments or the law of God are still meant to both be taught and kept because they represent God's character. It's never ever going to change. This is the image that we are being transformed into. Faithful, honest, giving, pure, obedient, submitted, etc. And the good news is that what was impossible as a work of the flesh or of our own effort is now made possible by the power of God living within us. It's Christ living his life through me. So we'll get into that later as well. So we study the law of God because it drives us and it directs us. So... Seeing our inability to keep its requirements, the law initially drives us to the Saviour. Once we have found our Saviour, then the Ten Commandments direct us in how we are to live. It shows us at the end goal, our glorification. So, firstly, what is the purpose of the law? Well, who knows what sin means? Missing the mark, yes. So, if I put a circle on the wall there, you know big red circle in that wall, and I got a bow and arrow, and I let go, and the arrow hit the target, then it's a hit. But if I get outside that circle, it's a sin, okay? It's an archery term. Just in terms of the actual physical archery is actually the word used to mean if you've missed the mark. So, it doesn't matter if you miss it by a millimetre, or if you accidentally fire away from the target, you've still missed the mark. It's still a sin. It doesn't matter how much you miss by, you've still missed it. Another example is missing the train. I know you guys are in Esperance not in Perth, but I've been in the train station, and you're running in to get to the train, and the driver doesn't care. Door's closing. I've missed the train. And someone turns up 10 minutes later, although well, they were much later than I am, but who cares? You both missed the train. So... It's not about how bad you are, it's about how good you're not. So, in the same way, God's Ten Commandments are the target. That's the perfect law. It's who God is. It's His character. That's God's stand. That's who He wants us to be. And anything less than that is a sin. It's a miss. So, Let's look at a couple of verses. I've got them up on the screen because I've got a lot of verses today. So I thought it would just be easier to do this. First, John 3, 4, chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. So don't just take my word for it. This is a verse that tells us sin is breaking God's law. God's law is the target. That makes sense? When we miss, when we fall short of this, we miss. Now, why are these rules the target? Why are these particular rules? Well, we have another verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, or for everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Ah, so now we have two definitions of what sin is. Sin is breaking the law, lawlessness. It's also falling short of God's glory. So breaking the law and falling short of God's glory are the same thing. You get that? Follow the logic? God's law and his glory are the same thing. This is where we get the idea that God's law is God's character. It's who he is. So glory, the glory of God, is essentially the character of God. The New Bible Dictionary states that the glory of God denotes the revelation of God's being, nature, and presence. In the New Testament, its chief use is to describe the revelation of the character and the presence of God. The glory of God is essentially a revelation of the character of God. Another example, in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So what does it mean, we beheld his glory? Does it mean he had a big golden halo on his head? You know, shining really bright and that kind of glory? No. It's referring to his character. When people saw Jesus growing up as a kid, working in the woodshop, doing whatever he was doing, helping people, he was revealing or demonstrating the character of God. Hebrews 1 3, same thing. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. So it makes it very clear in that verse. God's glory is his character, it's who he is. He's talking not about a physical likeness, he's talking about a. Oh, let's just go to Genesis. Okay. God made man in his own image. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So. Does that mean that God has two arms and two eyes and all that kind of thing? No. I think by now you're getting the point. God is a spirit, he doesn't have a body. So it's not about a physical image. Rather is now talking about his moral likeness. So in the character and the behaviour of man was to be seen a perfect portrayal of the character and behaviour of God. So when Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. They were kind of like Jesus. They were perfect. It's pretty good, eh? Adam and Eve were perfect. God made them perfect. He said it was very good. They had His glory, His character. But something happened. You know what the story is. Adam sinned. Now the image of God is corrupted. He doesn't reflect God's glory anymore. The sad thing is, he passed on a corrupted likeness to his son and that got passed down to the rest of humanity. So he begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So Adam's image, Adam's character was corrupted. It's not perfect anymore. Doesn't reflect God anymore, and that was passed down to the rest of humanity. We inherited that. So, not only does Adam's and our character not show what God is like anymore because we're fallen, but we are also lost and confused. How do we know what we should be like anymore because now we don't know what God was like anymore? We're fallen. So, That's why God gave us the law. It's a revelation of the character of God. So to summarize what we've said so far, if the glory of God is the character of God and the glory of God is the same thing as the law of God, then the law of God was given to reveal the character of God and therefore show us what God wants us to be like, like him. It's always been his plan. When we fail to live up to God's perfect moral standard, who he is, Then we have missed the mark. We have sinned. So Jesus taught in Matthew 5.48, But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So humanly, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And we're going to look at how this works later on. So now the second question we're asking, what is the effect of the law? So the purpose of the law is to reveal who God is, to reveal his character. What is the effect of the law? The next verse is Romans chapter 7, verse 7. It says, Well, then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, You must not covet. So you can think of the law as a mirror or a torch, like a light, which reveals to us our sin and our moral failure, but it's not just what we do that's wrong, it's who we are that's fallen, that's corrupted. And sometimes, generally speaking, people don't understand that. People don't understand that they've got a corrupt heart, a corrupt sinful nature. And so God gives us the law so we can see that there's something wrong. Now, sins and sin. Sins are my behavior. Sin is my nature. Does that make sense? It's my sins, my sinful behavior, that expose my sin, which is my fallen, corrupt nature. So God makes me aware of my sins in order that he might reveal my sinful nature. Something I learned as a kid was the illustration of the horse thief. Did the man become a horse thief when he stole the horse? Or did he steal the horse because he's already a horse thief by nature? Well, if he wasn't a horse thief, he wouldn't have wanted to steal the horse. So he stole the horse because that was already in his nature. What we do is a result of who we are. Not who we are a result of what we do. Now, I want to go to Galatians chapter 3, 19 to 25. And this is a really good passage to understand the effect of the law. Why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promised to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child or seed who was promised. Verse 21. Is there a conflict then? between God's law and God's promises to Abraham when God said that through your seed all the nations will be blessed? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. So we're just going to take a bit of time to go through this because it basically explains what we want to know. So why was the law given? Well, it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed only until the coming of the child who was promised. So the law was there to show people their sins until Christ. And then 19... God gave his law through angels to Moses, but the promise given to Abraham was given directly to Abraham. So basically it says here on Mount Sinai, the law was given to the angels, angels gave it to Moses, it was an indirect transfer, and then Moses brought it down to the people. The promise to Abraham, on the other hand, was given without mediators or middlemen, or angels, it was given to Abraham directly and intimately. So God actually gave that promise directly to Abraham. 21. Is there a conflict then? Absolutely not. If the law could give us life, we could be made right with God by obeying it. So, does the law given to Moses contradict the promise given to Abraham? No, the law doesn't contradict, but it does give an alternative to the promise. The law offers man a choice, you see. We can either receive a righteous standing before God by simply believing what God says. That's God's promise to Abraham. In your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That's pointing to Jesus dying on the cross. Or we can keep every part of the law. You've got a choice. If any legal system could bring a person salvation, it would be the Ten Commandments. The law is absolutely perfect. The only problem is we can't keep it. Jesus says, You've heard it was said to love your neighbor, but I say you're to love your enemy. Oh, that's Matthew 5. Therefore, if you've ever been angry at an enemy, you're guilty. You've heard it said that you're not to swear falsely that you're to commit your oaths to the Lord. But I say unto you, anything more than a simple yes or no is from the evil one. So if you ever failed to love your enemy or made a promise and backed it up with anything more than a simple yes or no, you're guilty, you've broken the law, you're out. You've missed, you've sinned. So verse 22 in Galatians, But the Scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. So basically saying we can't keep the law, so there is really only one way to get to heaven, and that is by faith in Jesus. So no one can be justified by keeping the law, all the law does is tell us that we're sinners in need of a saviour. That's why it was given. The promise was given about 430 years or 400 years before the law. But men began to think, and they still think today, I don't need God's grace because I'm pretty good. I'm a good person. You've heard that before. I don't need to embrace his promised seed. I don't need to receive the gift of salvation, I'm doing okay. And people write books like I'm okay, you're okay, and esteeming yourself highly, all those kind of things. The word, as we went through last week, says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that seeks after God. So there's not one person who can say, because of the sincerity of my search and the integrity of my pursuit of truth, I discovered God. No. The Bible says no one seeks after God. That's zero, zilch or zip, people. So God seeks us. God is the one who seeks us. The law was given for us to realize that we need to be sought. The law was given to mankind as a mirror, saying, take a look, you're a mess. Here's a standard of righteousness. It's beautiful. It's workable. It's profoundly simple, but you can't keep it. So, Here's the important purpose that the law serves. Suppose I said to my friend John, There's is a little story for you. John, someone just went to the Esperance Courthouse and paid $25,000 on your behalf for a violation. What are you talking about, he would say. What kind of violation? A traffic violation? That's ridiculous, he would say. And he wouldn't appreciate the gift given on his behalf. The price paid for his mistake. Why? Because I haven't told him what he'd done wrong yet, right? On the other hand, if I said, John, didn't you know there is a new law that protects snails as an endangered species? When you drove through the town the other day, you smashed dozens of them and received a fine of $25,000. But a man paid your fine. All right, John's response is now different. He's not going to say, what? That's ridiculous. I didn't have to pay a fine. No, now he's humble and he's broken. He says, Oh, wow, who paid for me? I'm really indebted to him now. Thank you very much. So the response is different. That's what the Lord does. It helps us to realize a need for salvation. So the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Wrote the Psalmist, Psalm 19, verse 7. So who is converted? It's a person who hears and understands the law. For without hearing, and understanding the law, people will not appreciate or receive the good news. Now, modern-day evangelism, I think, has made a fundamental mistake in the way they witness to people. We present the gospel, the good news that Jesus loves us, he died for us, and wants to take us to heaven to be with him forever. But we don't talk about the law, we don't talk about sin. We talk about the concepts of salvation without saying anything about the consequences of sin. So here's another little picture to help you understand this. You're in a 747 jumbo jet headed to Sydney. Two hours into the flight, the pilot calls for the senior flight attendant and says, There's a leak in our fuel tank. We're not going to make it to Sydney. We're going down fast. You're over the desert somewhere. The flight attendant, wiping the sweat off her brow, dabbing the tears from her eyes, smiles as she returns to the cabin saying, Greetings, passengers. Could I interest any of you in a parachute? It will make your flight more enjoyable. And in it, I think you'll discover a new measure of peace, joy, and love. Who would like a parachute? There may be three or four people raise their hands. If you are among the three or four taking one, you see the other passengers snickering and pointing at you. Before long, you discover your parachute is tight and uncomfortable. You begin to think, this isn't giving me any joy at all. This is ridiculous. And after 20 minutes or so, you take it off and say to the stewardess, you lied to me. You promised I would be comfortable, full of joy and warmed by love. But all I got were snickers, jeers and a rash. So, this is what we see happening in present day evangelism a lot of the time. Not all the time, a lot of the time. I was promised love and joy, new converts complain, but my friends made fun of me and I felt restricted. And that's why many people who come to Jesus then turn away from him. So consider an alternative situation, scenario. Another stewardess in the same situation hears the same message from the captain. She enters the cabin saying, Stop what you're doing. Put down your reading material. I want your full, undivided attention. The captain has informed me that this plane is losing fuel fast. We're going down. Who wants a parachute? Now it's a different motivation, isn't it? Suddenly the people are fighting for the parachutes. No one cares if the flight for those remaining minutes is smooth or if they have enough mobility to play video games. No, everyone is clinging to his parachute, making sure it is secure because everyone knows the plane is going down. That's the purpose of the law. It's to tell us we've missed the mark and the consequence for that is death. You need salvation. So... I believe that oftentimes the reason we are ineffective, or the church overall, in the Western world especially, is ineffective in long-term evangelism is because we have not been honest enough with people to say, you are a damned, doomed sinner. You have a hole in your tank, you have broken the law, you're headed for destruction. That's the bad news of the gospel, isn't it? I could sit here, hold your hand and talk about warm, fuzzy thoughts, but I love you too much. You need to know the truth, and the truth is this. The soul that sins shall surely die, for the wages of sin is death. Is Ezekiel 18.20 and Romans 6.23 Wait a minute, you protest. I thought it was the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. Romans two four. well, it is. But it sounds to me like you're talking about the severity of God. I am. <laughs> but they're both valid. The law will lead us to Christ, and so will the kindness of Christ, God's love. If a person has a broken heart, you share grace. They're already broken. They don't need to be broken by the law anymore. Share the good news. Share the love of God with them. But to the person whose heart is hard, they need to be broken. They need the law to smash them. They need the law to break that facade, to break that false hope that they have that false understanding of who they are. So, we can ask the question of ourselves, have we shared the reality of the law with the unsaved people that we care about? Our family members? Our friends? Workmates? I suggest that you make it a part of your testimony. When you're sharing your faith, you say, I realized that I'd broken God's law. And because I've broken God's law, then the consequence is death. I was going to go to hell. And when I understood that I was a liar and a thief and a, a doctor at heart and a murderer at heart, I realized that I'm not such a good person. And you can go on with that in your testimony. And then they can't say to you, oh, it's good to see your life on a good solid moral footing. I'm happy for you, but I don't need that. If you share it with the law, then they'll realize that, well, I'm not perfect either. Maybe I need what you've got. Verse 23 in Galatians, But the way of faith in Christ was available to us. We were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. So we're in trouble. We're like in a prison cell here. Verse 24, let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. If you got a King James Bible, you'll see that the words to bring us are in italics. So they're not present in the original. So verse 24 should read, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster until Christ. So it protected us, kept us in custody, until we could be made right with God through faith. Now, the New King James says that we might be justified by faith. Now what's the difference between being justified and being forgiven? Well, here's an example. You know Hitler, right? There's plenty of evidence, conclusive evidence, that Hitler was guilty guilty of mass murder. So just pretend he's alive today. He goes before the judge, and the judge says, I forgive you, you're free. Terrible judge, but he said that. He says, I forgive you, you're free. Now, Hitler goes his way, and he's probably quite a happy man, but everybody knows that he's still a mass murderer. He's still got all those charges sitting there in the books, in the records, he just hasn't been made to pay for them yet. He's just been let off. But that's not what justification or being made right with God is. Because unless the fine is paid, unless the penalty is paid, then that sin remains. So if Hitler instead was justified, it would mean that someone had paid his fine, someone had taken his penalty. And then it would be like just if I'd never sinned. Justified. Justified never sinned. So his record would be gone, wiped clean, because now the fine has been paid, someone would have probably had to date the death penalty for him. So someone is willing to do that for him and then it's paid. Cross that one off, that's been paid for. Is not there anymore. And God doesn't remember our sins. That's how good that is. And it's all because of the blood of Christ. For us, it's the blood of Christ that pays the penalty for our sins. Jesus' death on the cross. So now my case can be legally dismissed and I have a right standing with God. So it's not just about being forgiven. It's about having a fine paid. Verse 25, and now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian or schoolmaster. So, the law was like a guardian or schoolmaster with a red pencil in hand, like a teacher, you know, circling all your mistakes. Oop, lie there, Pssh, big circle there. Okay, always condemning us. Always going, oh, I've stuffed up again. But once Christ came into our lives, the law is no longer to be a part of our life. Okay, that's why it's until Christ. And this is a radical statement, and if it didn't say it here, it would be dangerous to say this. But it's true. I don't have to keep the law to go to heaven. God's gift of salvation is just that. It's a gift. There are no conditions, and that's the whole point of the new covenant. So what's my responsibility? Well, all I need to do is have a change of mind, turning from my sin to follow God, repentance, but that's something that starts on the inside. It's not something, it's an action. It becomes an action. And trust that Jesus' death on the cross was a payment for my sins, and that's it. The rest of my life is a song of praise and worship, giving glory to God for the wonderful gift of life and love that he has lavished upon me. It's got nothing to do with any good works that I do. So I don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. I don't have to feel condemned if I make a mistake because I know that that mistake has been paid for, my sin has been paid for. So now we have seen what the effect of the law is. It's like a light that reveals sinful behavior, thinking and motives, and so reveals that we are sinful by nature. It's like a doctor correctly diagnosing a disease so he can give the correct cure. That's what it's like. Now, I've just said we don't have to keep the commandments. As a Christian, but I want to read you this verse. Matthew five nineteen. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If I got up here and I said to you, Oh, the ten commandments are obsolete, it's now okay to steal, lie, covet, murder and lust and I also live that kind of lifestyle he wouldn't really think highly of me. But the opposite is also true. If I, like I'm doing now, I'm telling you that this is God's standard and we need to seek to live to this because it's his character, it's his moral fiber, so to speak, and I'm living it myself, then what does the verse say? I'll be called great, and so will you. People will respect us because we're becoming more like Christ. We're becoming more like him, his character. We're being changed from glory to glory. So the law is not God revealing our sinfulness just to rub our noses in it. Having faced the truth, God's desire is now to clean us up and change us. And as we've just talked about, before we can know just how good the good news is, we must first understand the bad news that we are sinners by nature because that is what salvation is a cure for. The greater I understand the total depravity of my sinful nature, the greater I will appreciate God's gift to me and the more I will love and appreciate him. Now, in Luke 7:47, it's at Simon the Pharisee's house, and he's just told the parable about two servants being forgiven a debt by the master, one a lot of money, one a little bit of money, and the end result, the catchphrase there was, "Moral of that story was" He who was forgiven more money was more thankful or loved more than he who was forgiven only a small amount. Now, as he's sitting there, there's this woman sitting at Jesus' feet, washing his feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair, and getting this really expensive perfume and anointing his feet with this perfume. And Jesus he uses this illustration with this woman. And he says, I tell you, her sins, and they are many, have been forgiven. So she has shown me much love. But a person who is forgiven little shows only little love. So it's really important that for us individually and when we share the gospel that we let them know that they're a sinner and we understand that our human nature is really bad. Therefore, we can really appreciate all that God has done. So for me, the more I understand how sinful and ugly and unlovable my human nature is, the more I will appreciate the fact that God loves me and all that he has done for me. So now we get to our third question. What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? Well, we're going to go to Matthew 5.17. It says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. It's not like, Oh, well, it didn't work, let's get rid of them. No, Jesus is going to make this happen. If the purpose of the law is to reveal the character of God, and the effect of the law is to reveal the failure of man, then we need to discover what Jesus means here in Matthew 5.17. For starters, the Ten Commandments will never change because God will never change. His character or glory remains the same forever. So Christ kept every ceremonial law and the Ten Commandments as God intended and so now we don't have to. The big question is though, regarding the Ten Commandments, what did Christ mean when he said that he will fulfill it? Or, because we know the Ten Commandments are God's glory, how would the glory of God be restored? How would his character be restored in us? So let's look at three scriptures to see what this means. The first one is Colossians. It says, Paul is speaking, God has given me the responsibility of serving his church and proclaiming his entire message to you, the full gospel. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it has been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you, this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. What is his glory, his character, so because Christ lives in us, we have the assurance of sharing his character. He is going to make us like him. How by him living in us? the next one is jeremiah thirty one verse thirty three but this is a covenant they will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So where was the law before this? It was in the Ark of the Covenant, in two stone tablets, right? And now it's going to be in our hearts. And then you got Ezekiel. This is the third one. Ezekiel 36, 25-27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart, and give you a tender, responsive heart. And verse 27, And I will put my spirit in you, so that you will follow my decrees, and be careful to obey my regulations. So, what did Paul say in Colossians? It was a mystery. Because it hadn't happened in the Old Testament. It had the Holy Spirit with them, but not in them. They didn't have this back then. But today, we do. John 14 17 is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that the Spirit would both be with us and later in us. When did that happen? Well, Pentecost. So. Putting it all together, why is it so important to have the Holy Spirit living in us? Because it's the Spirit living in us that enables us to keep the law of God. For his character becomes our character. So, Charles Price has a really good summary of what we've done so far. So I'm just going to read it to you. It's a five-point summary of what we've learned so far. God made man in his image, in the moral behavior of of man was to be seen the moral character of God. So that's Adam and Eve. 2. Man sinned and came short of the glory of God. He no longer showed what God is like. 3. The law was given to reveal the character of God which is described as the glory of God, so that man, in seeing what God is like, may know what he is supposed to be like, having been created in God's image. 4. The law exposed man's inability to keep the law, and left him hopelessly condemned. Five, Christ came to fulfill the law. By the indwelling presence of his Spirit in people, he will write the law on their minds, place it in their hearts, and be their hope of portraying or revealing the glory of God. He will restore the moral character of God to human experience. So I thought that was a good summary. It's basically the gospel. Man's greatest need is that he is godless and needs to be made godly. Fine, you know, God can just pay the penalty for our sins, but if he doesn't change us on the inside, we're not going to change. We're still going to be godless. We're not going to be sharing his glory, sharing his character. So we need to be reconciled to God. How does it happen? It's not just by being forgiven, but it's by being changed so we can live in heaven with Jesus. So now the question is, how should the Christian look at the Ten Commandments now that they have the Holy Spirit living inside of them? Well, they're no longer commandments, but promises. So instead of hearing, you must not steal, we now hear, you shall not steal. It's a promise. Imagine a father or a mother saying to a child he is holding, you shall not fall. The father is saying that he will prevent the child from falling because he is the one holding the child. It's a promise. You shall not fall because I'm holding you. We can continue. Instead of hearing, you shall not lie, we hear, you shall not lie. In other words, through the power of God, you won't lie anymore. You don't have to lie anymore. God will give us the strength to be honest. Instead of hearing, you shall not murder, we now understand it to say, I will give you the strength to love. So, this is wonderful. It's awesome, the commandments that had condemned us have now become promises that liberate us. We are being restored to the glory of character of God, which was lost at the fall. And so as forgiveness of sins is a gift, so the deliverance from sin is a gift. As justification is a gift, so sanctification is a gift. So when the law says you shall not steal, we have the potential not to steal anymore. Not because we are trying harder not to, but because Christ lives in us and he doesn't steal. It's that simple. It's his life being lived through us. He doesn't steal, so we don't. The Christian life is not a consequence of what I do for God, but a consequence of what he does in me. And we can also look at the fruit of the Spirit. It's also a reflection of the glory and character of God. In the same way, I can be gentle, not because I'm trying harder to be gentle, but because Christ is living in me and he is gentle. 2 Corinthians 3.18 explains this process. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory or character of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And the New Living Translation says, so all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. We are changed into his character. Now notice the tense there. It's not past tense. We have already been changed. It's not future tense. We will be changed. The change in our character is happening right now and will be complete when we go to be with the Lord or we're raptured. Romans 8.30, what does it mean? Those he justified, he also glorified? Well, it just means we're glorified where the process is complete and we get our new bodies to match. We're fully restored to the image or character in which God first made man. God's expectations have always been the same. It's just that now, through Christ's sacrifice on the cross, we have the resources to actually be and do what God intends us to be. Here's one of my favorite verses. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So I've read this a lot of times, but just as I'm studying this, it's like, ah, The righteous requirement of the law, what's that? The Ten Commandments is going to be fulfilled in me because of what Christ has done. The whole point of the Christian life is that only Christ can live it. It's not a technique or a discipline, but a relationship where you allow Jesus Christ to make his home in your heart and allow him to live in you the life you could never live by yourself. I mean, if you could live it by yourself, why bother becoming a Christian? So one final point here before we finish. Because it is God who is doing the changing and not us, we may not recognize that the changes are happening. Often it is those around us who notice the change in us first. We're still fighting this battle with the flesh. We're still quite aware of our shortcomings and our sins and our failures. And because of that, we often fail to see the progress we have made in other areas of our life. So it's a change from the inside out. It's not something we're trying to do. It's a spirit thing. Now, the Bible's advice for this is found in Hebrews 12, 1b-2a. It says, And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. So we run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And how do we do it? By keeping our eyes on Jesus. Don't look at yourself. Don't look at your failings. Don't look at your all the times you've messed up. Look, we're human. We've still got this sinful nature we're battling with. But God has promised he will complete what he has started, the work of sanctification. So don't look at yourself and wonder if God is working. Jesus said the Father is always working. Most of the work in your heart is done behind the scenes. When you get to heaven, you'll see it clearly. But don't be condemned now. So, to conclude, we ask three questions and we answer three questions. What is the purpose of the law? Answer, to reveal the glory of God, to show us what God is like. Two, what is the effect of the law? Answer, to reveal the sinfulness of our human nature and make us realize that we are helpless to fix ourselves. And three. What did Jesus mean in Matthew 5.17? I have not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. Well, the whole point of the Christian life is that only Christ can live it. He makes his home in your heart. He puts his spirit inside of you and promises to change or transform you from glory to glory. Therefore, fulfilling the law in us as we become more like God in our character. Father, I just thank you. Lord for the way that you've changed something that was condemning us and making us feel hopeless and helpless into something that is now a promise the Ten Commandments are now our promise, it's a promise of who we're going to be like who you're making us into help us to be patient as you do your work in us help us to keep our eyes on Jesus the initiator and perfecter of our faith and Father I just pray that you'll help us not to yet yeah, to be condemned but Lord to rather just abide in your love, focus our eyes on you, focus on developing our relationship with you, being in the Word, spending time in prayer, encouraging and being encouraged by other believers so we can continue to grow more into your image and your character in Jesus' name. Amen.